KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. A COVID relief stimulus bill has passed. How much help will it be? Uh, We are not done. I think the thing I would say is that um, I do think it's great that we got something. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Twenty thousand doses of the Moderna vaccine are in San Diego County. To the best of our ability in medical science, which is at an incredible level now, this vaccine is safe and effective. And a look at how tribal casinos are being impacted by COVID outbreaks. Plus, a look at creating equity in STEM fields. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Finally, there is a $900 billion stimulus package, and in it is a $600 direct payment for many adults and $300 per week in enhanced jobless benefits, among many other things. This comes at a time when COVID numbers are surging, businesses are having to close their doors, and people are going hungry. It also comes after tough negotiations. The Problem Solvers Caucus, a group of congressional representatives from both sides of the aisle, pushed for bipartisan cooperation to get this legislation passed. Joining us is Congressman Scott Peters, a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Congressman Peters, welcome. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I know getting this relief wasn't easy. Can you give us an idea of what's in the bill, especially for working Americans? Sure. I just want to start out by saying that we know people are hurting and our small businesses are suffering and families are struggling to pay the bills and feed their kids. Um, And I think that we share that frustration with our constituents. And one of the things we saw in the Problem Solvers Caucus was after that first bipartisan uh, CARES bill, we just didn't see any progress from leadership. So we came together as a bipartisan group to really promote uh, what became the framework for this agreement in the House and the Senate. So um, basically, it's, as as you mentioned, $600 direct payments to individuals, including adults and children, Uh, unemployment supplements. So in addition to what you get from the state, you'll get an additional $300 per week uh, in enhanced unemployment benefits for an additional 11 weeks. That compares to $600 under the first bill, but $0 for the past year. So we think that's good. There's support for small businesses uh, in, the, in a second forgivable paycheck protection program. Uh, there's housing and rental assistance. A lot of folks can't pay their rent. Uh, that hurts them and it does hurt a lot of landlords as well. Uh, and investments to tackle the public health crisis. So $20, $20 billion for the purchase of vaccines uh, and $100 billion in funding for the FDA and uh, Health and Human Services, CDC, also that we can deploy these vaccines that offer so much promise and maybe can help to get our businesses open and get people back to So when will people who need benefits uh, start to see them? Uh, the deadline for the, the, the one-time payment to, uh, to go out is uh, mid-January, January 15th. Secretary Mnuchin 
he thinks that we can get it out before the end of the year, so that'd be terrific. Uh, we, we, wish him the, we wish him well on that. Uh, and unemployment will start now. It's perspective. And what about direct aid to cities and states? Well, that was the big thing we, uh, we did not get. And I, um, I think Democrats fought really hard for this. Republicans uh, were expressed a concern, ostensibly, that um, they didn't want to bail out blue states that were in trouble with pensions. You know, if we're trying to protect employers, which was the whole rationale behind the Paycheck uh, Protection Program, which I supported, you have to recognize that state and local governments are among the biggest employers in the, in the United States. And this puts a lot of pressure on police, firefighters, teachers uh, who really rely on that. So uh, we are not done. I think the thing I would say is that um, I do think it's great that we got something. I think um, getting anything in, in this um, in, in the way the Congress is now in this age of polarization is really important. And we had no presidential leadership from President Trump. President-elect Biden has said that this will be a, a priority of his. So I think we take what we can get today and then uh, come January, we'll look to be doing more. And particularly with a focus on state and local government uh, aid, I think will be that the thing that um, is most sorely needed, as well as an extension of, of uh, support for folks who, who are hurting, uh, like through unemployment or Medicaid uh, or for food assistance through SNAP. You know, I understand, you know, that there are many other provisions in this bill. For instance, there are allocations addressing climate change. Can you tell me about that? So we passed two bills. That's very confusing. We passed an appropriations bill as well. Um, the appropriations bill uh, did have some really important uh, climate provisions. Uh, I think the most important one is for hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs. Uh, HFCs is a, is a super pollutant, which has a much, much more damaging uh, effect on the climate in the short run. It doesn't persist. It's a short-lived climate pollutant than carbon dioxide. But um, but getting rid of HFCs and changing over to, to ones that don't damage the climate are really important. We've got buy-in from industry. And finally, we've got a, a law that's going to send American industry in the right direction. Uh, it also contains my Use It Act, which is a carbon capture act. Uh, the Use It Act supports a, a developing a technology called direct air capture. It would actually be taking a, a machine that pulls carbon out of the air and puts it into the ground and also um, provides competitive financial awards for innovative technologies that advance direct air capture. You know, one thing that's got people outraged about this, um, this aid is, is the three martini lunch tax deduction. Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about that and why it had to be included to get this bill passed? Uh, you know, it's, uh, um, it's sort of ridiculous. I, I think, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, you make a compromise and you have, to, you have to give some things to get what you wanted. I don't, I don't think Republicans cared as much about unemployment supplements as we did. Um, so what they wanted was uh, you know, a deduction for, um, for lunches. That's one that's rightly subject to criticism. But I don't think um, it was enough to say we should vote against the bill. People are hurting. People are, you know, people are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and the choice was never between whether we're going to you know, add $600 to your unemployment or $300 to your unemployment is between 300 and zero. And I was not willing to, uh, to go with zero. And, you know, giving, given all of the negotiations that had to take place, are you personally satisfied with the outcome of this? I'm satisfied that we made progress. I'm not satisfied because we're not done. A long time ago, I suggested a, a mechanism called automatic stabilizers that would have said for, for unemployment, for, um, for food assistance and for Medicaid, let's set a formula so that 
this money would be automatically funded depending on economic conditions. If economic conditions persisted in a bad way, the money would automatically be funded. And if, for, and if at one point, as we hope and we expect, the economy recovered, automatically that, that aid would be turned off. That would have prevented a lot of this, but we have to get right back at it uh, in, in, um, in January, February, because it's not enough. It, it didn't last long enough. What's your view on why the Senate came around? Uh, some analysts have tied Republican yes votes to fears of losing the Senate races in Georgia next month. What's your thought on that? It's hard for me to gauge. I just say that we, we found um, our House group, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is Democrats and Republicans, found a similar group of Republican and Democratic senators who wanted to get something done. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to, um, to you know, be sent to Washington, D.C., have this, this um, awesome responsibility, uh, but not be able to get attention for getting something done. And so uh, I think there's a lot of pressure from the middle uh, against the extremes. So yes, I'm satisfied with, uh, with where we are today. I'm- and you know, you're starting your fifth term in the House. How has the political climate in Washington changed since you first arrived? Or, or was it uh, just as, as fractious in 2012? It's always been fractious. I can tell you that my goal is to, to find that sweet spot again where we can compromise, where we can uh, you know, fight uh, with our values, but be on the same playing field come out at the end and you know, take half a loaf and go back for the, for the other half later. I think that's what we need to get. I would say that one of the more complicating factors has been the, the lack of presidential leadership. I mean, President Trump has been extremely divisive. No one would call Joe Biden a, a, a staunch conservative, but he is bipartisan by nature. Uh, he believes that bipartisanship is an objective. It's not an inconvenience. And I think that that's really, um, that holds hope for us to bring this country back together. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts to share about why the Democrats won the presidency but lost a dozen House seats in this election? I do. I think uh, I think we won the presidency because, uh, like I said about Joe Biden, people want um, someone who has got a record of working with everybody to get things done. Uh, I think that's certainly what we see around here. Um, and I, I think that... Um, Boy, President Trump could not have mismanaged the uh, the pandemic any worse. I mean, we're the we're the worst record of any uh, essentially of any developed nation, uh, and that's you know that's on him. Uh, Democrats need to do a better job of fighting these labels that Republicans have assigned to us, like socialists, which I'm not, uh, for open borders, which I'm not, um, and uh, you know against the police. You know, I'm endorsed by the police. I want to support the police. I want to get. I want to. I want them to get it right. Uh, but Democrats, um, we got labeled with a lot of unfair, um, uh, unfair criticism, and I think that we're going to have to show by what we pass what we're really for. And I think that'll be a challenge. Uh, challenge to us. It's certainly something I welcome. I've been speaking with Congressman Scott Peters, a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Congressman Peters, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. There are 20,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine developed by Moderna in San Diego County. It's the second coronavirus vaccine granted emergency authorization by the FDA and CDC over the weekend and quickly shipped out. Here's Dr. John Bradley, a medical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rady Children's Hospital, which received 3,500 doses of the vaccine yesterday. This vaccine has been incredibly well studied, both vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, 40,000 in the Pfizer trial and 30,000 in Moderna. 
huge numbers. So to the best of our ability in medical science, which is at an incredible level now, this vaccine is safe and effective. Meanwhile, some of the first San Diego nursing home residents are getting vaccinated. Joining me to talk about the latest on the vaccine is Jonathan Woosen, biotech reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you reported San Diego now has enough doses of the two vaccines for all of San Diego County's highest risk hospital staff to get one dose. But put that into context for us. Where are we overall in terms of being able to vaccinate other high risk groups? Yeah, we're still at the beginning of the beginning. So, you know, there are about uh, 80 plus 82,000 hospital healthcare staff uh, throughout the county and in and, and different healthcare roles. Uh, about half of those are in this highest highest risk group. So people who are working in ICUs, emergency rooms, who have regular, regular contact with COVID-19 patients. And we're pretty much at the point now where uh, we can begin getting each of those people their first of two shots. Uh, so they're going to need to get a second shot either three weeks down the line if you're getting the Pfizer vaccine or four weeks down the line uh, with the Moderna vaccine. But from there, first of all, there are still other people in the hospitals, other employees who aren't part of that frontline healthcare worker category. And there's also this other group of people who live in nursing homes, people who live in skilled nursing, assisted living facilities, uh, places that accounted for at least around 20% of COVID deaths in San Diego County. And we're just beginning to see uh, some of those folks get vaccinated. So we're still at a point where there's much more demand for vaccine than there is supply. Mm. And the Moderna vaccine, like Pfizer's, is also an RNA-type vaccine and is similarly reported to be 94.5% effective. Remind us how it works to protect against the virus. Right. So both of these companies' vaccines use a molecule called messenger RNA. It's basically a, a little snippet, a little piece of the virus's genetic code. And that code has information for making the spike protein. So this is that protein on the surface of the virus that grabs onto your cells and allows the virus to get in. So by teaching the body to build and then recognize that spike protein, the idea is to have an immune response that can prevent infection and also potentially kill infected cells when somebody gets exposed. But unlike the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine does not need to be stored at ultra-low temperatures. What's different about this vaccine? Well, that is the main difference, that the Moderna vaccine can be kept in an ordinary freezer for long-term storage. I can also keep it in a refrigerator for about a month. So having a vaccine that you can keep in the fridge for a few weeks while getting it out to people that need it uh, makes this something that could be more accessible uh, across the county, and also if you think at a national or international level. And nursing home residents are being uh, starting to get vaccinated. Explain how the process here is going uh, to work with the partnerships with pharmacists uh, from CVS and Walgreens, and what's the timeline on that? Right. So there were a few nursing home residents that were uh, actually vaccinated yesterday on, on Monday, but that was at a nursing home that's affiliated with Sharp Chula Vista Medical Center. But probably the bulk of San Diego's nursing home residents are going to be vaccinated through a program that the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have set up with CVS and Walgreens, so the big retail pharmacies that everybody's familiar with and probably within walking distance of your home. So 
basically nursing homes have signed up to have either CVS or Walgreens bring in pharmacists and pharmacy technicians who are going to uh, bring in vaccine and administer that in these facilities. So that should start in California the week of December 28th. Uh, we don't know the exact timeline in terms of when certain facilities in San Diego are, are going to be getting vaccine, but uh, we do know that several of them have signed up for that program and the vast majority of facilities in California have signed up for that program as well. So we're going to see over the course of the next several weeks, uh, pharmacists going into these nursing homes and administering vaccine there. You know, the infection rate in San Diego County continues to break records with more than 3,200 new cases recorded a day just over the weekend. Uh, so, you know, despite the vaccine, talk to me about why now isn't the time to let our guards down. Well, now isn't the time to let our guards down because we're still at a point where if you're listening to this conversation, you probably have not been vaccinated. You probably won't be for some time. Uh, we're talking about a very, very tiny number of people who are eligible to get the vaccine. That's not going to change for several months. So the vaccine isn't really going to be there to save or protect people that get COVID-19 right now. And we're already at a place where we're seeing many thousands of cases every day. Hospitals are filling up to the point where they're essentially turning away ambulances in, in all but the most dire of cases. Um, and so the people who are being impacted by this pandemic aren't benefiting from that vaccine. So it might be good news and it is good news, but you know, when I talk to researchers in San Diego, they say, this isn't the end. It's not the beginning of the end. Uh, it might be the end of the beginning. So we still have to get through this winter. We still have to get into the spring, which is really when a vaccine will probably be widely available. And the more we do now to limit the spread of the virus, the more quickly and the more effectively a vaccine can bring an end to the pandemic or help bring an end. I've been speaking with Jonathan Woosen, biotech reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. I'm Jade Hindman, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Earlier this year, San Diego County's tribal casinos bet big they could reopen and still keep COVID-19 at bay. It's been a bad wager. KPBS obtained county records of community outbreaks showing hundreds of cases tied to area tribal casinos. Reporter Amitha Sharma has more. There were at least 638 coronavirus cases linked to seven local tribal casinos from June through mid-December. The highest are tied to the county's two largest casinos, Viejas Casino and Resort and Sequan Casino and Resort. There were 166 cases connected to Viejas and 155 to Sequan, according to records of community outbreaks obtained by KPBS. It's very concerning that there's ongoing transmission in these settings. Christian Ramers is an infectious disease doctor, he says that transmission 
fuels community spread. It's like a chain reaction. You know, we, we're not going to be able to get our hands around this epidemic when there's just this ongoing transmission. While most of the cases are linked to Viejas and Sequan, the records reveal that no major casino has been spared. They show 102 cases tied to Barona, Hamul, 91, Harrah's, 57, Valley View, 45, and Pala, 22. Representatives from those five casinos either declined to comment or did not respond to interview requests. To say that a case is linked with a location means that a person was present in the location within two weeks of being diagnosed with the disease. It does not mean that the person contracted the virus at the location or infected anyone else there. The county wouldn't comment on this story, and for months it has refused to release detailed information on community outbreaks, arguing that businesses and organizations would not report them if they knew they would be public. KPBS and other news outlets sued for the records in Superior Court but lost the cases on appeal. The county defines a community outbreak as three or more people with COVID-19 who are not close contacts being in a specific place over the same 14-day period. The fact that an establishment is the site of an outbreak doesn't necessarily mean it has unsafe practices. Tuari Bigknife, chief legal officer for Viejas Enterprises, issued a written statement to KPBS. Bigknife said, quote, While it is true that since reopening, Viejas Casino and Resort has learned of some guests and team members testing positive for COVID-19, those guests and team members typically interacted with numerous other persons and places other than Viejas Casino and Resort during the potential exposure period, end quote. Sequan's chief administrative officer, Adam Day, also said in a written statement, quote, there have been no outbreaks linked to our casino. The casinos closed when the pandemic hit in March, but resumed business in May against the wishes of state and county officials. Tribes are sovereign entities and not subject to state and county health orders. Since reopening, the casinos have touted new precautions. Sequan offers COVID-19 testing. Viejas says it performs contact tracing. Masks and social distancing are required. They've also intensified sanitation and installed plexiglass dividers. Viejas and Sequan don't intend to close again despite a new statewide stay-at-home order amidst skyrocketing coronavirus numbers. Sequan's days stated, quote, as a tribal government who is responsible for providing medical care, education, police protection, fire protection, etc., to our tribal members, we are an essential business. SDSU business lecturer Miro Kopik says the huge impact California's 74 tribal casinos have on the state and local economy create a delicate situation. These tribes throughout California generate oh, over $3.5 billion in tax revenues for the state. Tony Wolf is a Viejas security guard who quit when the casinos reopened in May. He says the tribes are putting profits over public health and so are players. It's not essential to go gamble. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. On the long list of industries disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic is drag. As part of our series of pandemic profiles, KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen spoke with one local drag queen who also opened a costume shop this year about how the community is trying to survive. Hi, um, my name is Vivi Incognito. I was raised in San Diego. I've been doing drag for about 10 years. 
Vivian Incognito is a kind of punk rock, extraterrestrial, post-binary drag performer. Prior to COVID, I was performing like two or three times a week. I was traveling um, every week up and down the coast, booking my own shows and uh, building my network. After COVID happened, all the drag shows got canceled. And when this is something that you do full time and your only uh, form of income, it was definitely a scramble to figure out what to do next. I know a lot of drag performers went to virtual uh, drag shows. I actually hosted a few virtual drag shows myself. Something that I can say about COVID is that most drag performers have learned a new skill. Not only do we style wigs, style outfits, do our makeup, but now we've um, had to learn how to record, <laughs> edit, and uh, produce our own like music videos, which is a lot of fun. Part of being a drag performer is that connection that you get when you're on stage. There's nothing that can replace the energy between the audience and the drag performer. So I know that a lot of that energy and excitement does get lost um, when you're just watching the show on a TV screen or on a computer screen. You don't get that dollar exchange, you know, you don't get tipped the same. Some performers, that energy and that exchange and that creative outlet is, is really what they have to look forward to week after week. And um, for a lot of people, there is a lot of depression, a lot of sadness, there's a lot of uh, creative blockage happening. It's really hard to focus on being creative and, be and coming up with like, uh, new ideas and, and ways to express yourself when you're also worrying about food and, and, and money and your job. I've had some friends that got a storage unit and had to put their stuff up for a little bit, um, taking a little break from drag, which is healthy too. Yeah, about 10 years ago when um, I first started doing drag, I came into this very store. Um, at that time it was called Secrets Wig, Wig Designs and it was owned by Maria. And Maria is a staple in our LGBT local community here. And when COVID happened, I messaged her about, well, what's, what's the plan gonna be? And she let me know that she was gonna ha actually have to um, go out of business. And so when I got that news, I was devastated. I had to make a quick decision what I was gonna do. And I talked to the landlord and I decided to take over the store myself. Um, I changed the name to Whips and Furs um, and we expanded on the wigs. We have super deluxe Santa costumes here, full on Santa suits that come with everything. And we also have like these like morph suits here. A lot of drag queens like to wear these while they perform. It was a tough decision to open up during the pandemic, but I've been just kind of doing whatever I can to keep afloat and to keep the store interesting enough to have people coming back. And I plan for after COVID um, that we're gonna have so many programs here at the store. So we'll have makeup tutorials, we're gonna have wig styling classes, we're gonna be making hip pads. Um, so we're gonna be having a lot of uh, community interaction and a lot of events here that really are gonna be a resource and a benefit for the community too. I cannot wait to hit the stage again. And as a performer during this COVID times, my drag has changed so much. Like I've really like grown through this experience. I know people are getting like super excited and eager to get back out there and stuff, but we all just kind of have to like wait it out a little bit. Um, that way we can all survive this <laughs> and, um, uh, and we can appreciate, you know, being together when this is all over.
That was Vivi Incognito, a local drag queen and owner of the costume shop Whips and Furs in North Park. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. I'm Jade Hindman, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. On the final episode of Season 3 of Rad Scientist, host Margot Wall explores why the STEM profession doesn't reflect the diversity of the general population. She talks to people who study this problem to understand how to make scientific spaces more equitable. Here's an excerpt from that episode. Dr. Mika Estrada is a social psychologist at UCSF who's done research on persistence of undergraduates in science, why some underrepresented students stay in their STEM majors and others don't. In the middle of her study, though, she flew to D.C. for a conference about the subject. Experts gave talks about a variety of topics, including kind of the hot subject of the time, which was this issue of self-efficacy, which is the idea that the person may or may not have confidence that they can do the science. And without self-efficacy, the theory was people would leave science. They were going on and on about this, and and um, by the end of the second day, I was just kind of tired of hearing this. I'm Latina, and I knew that that wasn't why I left. <laughs> So I kind of left the room and was standing outside and a crowd of maybe seven or eight other people that were there and we were all minorities and we had all left the room where they were describing and trying to figure out why we leave. So they all started chatting with each other and none of them had taken the, you know, quote unquote, traditional route in academia and pursued tenure track jobs, which effectively meant they all had left the pipeline. And we started talking about why did we leave? And in that conversation, it became really clear that none of us left because we felt like we couldn't do the science. We all felt we could do the science. We left because the social experience was exhausting. Mika took that insight and modified her study design. She was already measuring self-efficacy, but she added new questions to her survey to measure scientific identity and values. And sure enough, when you do a simultaneous analysis of those, of those variables, the big predictor was not efficacy. It was the sense of identity that I belonged to this, this community of scientists and that the values were in alignment with my own values. What Mika and others have uncovered is that there's a big social component to persistence. You know, it doesn't take a scientific study to intuit that negative experiences brought on by racism, by microaggressions, are not going to make students feel like they belong to a scientific community. Of course, there are other factors that are important too. 
And that's why Mika, along with other scientists studying this issue, were invited to make recommendations to undergraduate institutions, things that they could do to mitigate the large dropout rates of underrepresented minorities. And they came up with five recommendations. So here they are. Recommendation one, track the demographics of your students in STEM majors. How representative are they of the general population? Which departments are doing best? Right now, this isn't happening everywhere. It's a problem because if you have a class, let's say somebody has a intro chemistry class and their retention rates are fantastic. African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, everybody loves that class and they stay in the sciences after. Clearly that class is doing something right. They could be a role model to the rest of the university on how to do it. And they don't even know it's happening. They don't even know. And same way they don't know the, the class that is totally losing everybody. On to recommendation number two. The second piece was to create strategic partnerships with programs that create lift. There are programs around the country that have already been shown to increase the likelihood of underrepresented students graduating with STEM degrees. Like the Meyerhoff program, which started 22 years ago at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Gentry Patrick from our last episode, he recently started a similar scholarship program and he, he partnered with the Meyerhoff to learn from their success. All of these programs that have shown success, they tend to have similar components like having cohort structures, having summer bridge classes, lots of focused mentorship, as well as paid research opportunities. Okay, so the third thing was to unleash the power of the curriculum. The way science is taught can lose the interest of certain students. When you have an intro to science class and there's no mention at all about how this is relevant to anything besides learning the language of science, you're going to lose the interest of a certain demographic. And Mika says that now is as good a time as any to reimagine what equitable curriculums could look like. We're in COVID right now. And that means a lot of the universities have gone online. And this is an amazing opportunity to update your curriculum in a way that is more inclusive and is using ways in which to engage students. And that brings us to the next recommendation. The fourth one was to address student resource disparities. So there's concrete elements of like, some students are working full time <laughs> in addition to going to school. This is a huge barrier for some. How are students who work a full-time job supposed to compete with students who have time to focus purely on their studies? Um, some programs, like Gentry's Pathways to STEM, provide that extra capital. And other schools make it possible to get work-study jobs, ensuring that students get paid for working in laboratories. And this approach can help not only by providing a job for the student, but also by providing research experience, which has been shown to increase persistence. And finally, there's step five, firing creative juices. How do we make science meaningful and joyful and creative? Part of this is covered in step three, curriculum development. But some of it requires things outside of the classroom. It can mean societies or clubs where students from similar backgrounds can express themselves through science and get support by sharing common experiences. There's one group of institutions that retains black undergraduates in STEM better than anyone else, and that is historically black colleges and universities. 
HBCUs. There haven't been major studies into the reason why they're so successful. So what we have to go off of is the testimonies of those who have attended HBCUs, who express a sense of belonging, wealth of representation, institutional support, and research opportunities. That was a clip from the latest Rad Scientist episode. To learn more about what's known about retaining underrepresented minorities at later stages of education, listen to the full episode. All you have to do is search for Rad Scientist in your favorite podcast app or go to kpbs.org backslash Rad Scientist. Arts organizations have been hit hard by the pandemic, but San Diego Opera discovered that some of the lessons it learned from an earlier financial crisis have proven useful during these current challenging times. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the opera's general director, David Bennett, about adapting to ever-changing guidelines for operation. David, when you stepped in to help out the opera at the time when it was facing closure, I went to one of your town hall meetings, and one of the concepts that came up way back then was the idea of being nimble. So how has that played into this whole pandemic? We have a core value at the opera. As a result of the near closure, we wrote new core value mission vision statements. And one of the core values that came about at that point was through nimble adaptation to the changing marketplace, we preserve the future of San Diego Opera. That is one of our core values. Now that was really in response to, I think a financial changing marketplace, right? The fact that we almost closed, but boy, there is not truer words that could be spoken about where we're living right now as a company, right? We were the first opera company in the United States to have to postpone or cancel performances due to COVID. So we, it hit us very early in March, and then we had to postpone the rest of our season. And so since then, all we have done is think about being nimble and pivoting and trying to find ways and explore ways to produce opera that can guarantee safety. So that's paramount. Artistic success is important and engaging with our community is important. Those are all wonderful things, but making sure that we can have an activity where the safety of our audience and all of our employees are are guaranteed is really the most important. Well, in opera too, you have singers who their voice is their instrument and the idea of getting a virus that, you know, in part attacks, you know, your ability to breathe and Mm -hmm. use your lungs Mm -hmm. seems like a particularly intense concern for you. And When you did finally get to do a staged performance, what were some of the restrictions and and kind of adaptations that you had to do? Well, as you mentioned, singers are sort of, singing is kind of a unique activity that you have to have concerns of COVID, right? Because of aspirate nature and sort of the volume of activity that happens with opera singing. So space was a very important consideration. And we had a lot of go back and forth with the union that represents singers. American Guild of Musical Artists. And one of the protocols that they established was for an outdoor performance, which we did, each singer had to have 120 square feet of their own space. And you couldn't encroach in the space of another singer. So that was a challenge. And that was defined by 15 feet in front of your mouth and the next singer, and then four feet on the side. So of course, if the singer turned, then you had to increase that base of 15 feet. 
that was a challenge. And as you know, a lot of the storytelling of opera is with actors, singers being very close to each other. Que Jalida Manina is in La Boheme when Rodolfo feels the hand of uh, Mimi for the first time and says, your hand is cold, your tiny hand is cold, which is a foreshadowing, of course, knowing that Mimi will die at the end. But it's sort of hard to have Rodolfo and Mimi hold hands when they need to be 120 square feet apart. So we had to come up with some creative solutions to make sure we told the story of La Boheme within the uh, constraints of safety. And talk a little bit about how you've adapted. Um, you guys have come up with a couple of different kind of solutions. So what have you learned through this pandemic and, and what kind of opportunities are you seeing for having some sort of opera performance and, and community for that? Well, clearly San Diego, we have some advantages in San Diego that other places don't have and it's our climate, right? So outdoor activity is much safer than indoor activity. We know that, I mean, that's been proven everywhere. And our climate here allows us to have outdoor activity for a longer period of time than other cities. So that's our first sort of big learning experiment, I would say. And it's taught us that we need to be producing outdoors more than we have in our past. So I think that will be something we'll continue to look at post-COVID. Right now, in terms of safety, our audience is confined to their cars. That's really the only kind of performance with a live audience that is permitted. I think the next step will be once we have some vaccine in making its way through our community will be outdoor performances with a live audience outside of cars and spaced, and then we will get back into the theaters. So there's still more learning to do with what kinds of activities that will be able to be outdoors outside of cars. And I think that's gonna be our next step. Now, I also remember from that town hall meeting that one of the things you were exploring at that point were some really interesting outdoor venues. If you remember, I threw up a picture of Mount Helix because, you know, and that was just something that I was fascinated by, by seeing that gorgeous venue that's sitting on top of Mount Helix. And I thought, wouldn't that be a great place to do a performance? Well, maybe it's time for us to start thinking about that again. And of course, the proximity we have to the ocean of finding some way to get an audience and performers near the ocean for a performance would be magical. So, so challenges can give you a lot of opportunities. Let's put it that way. Now, another thing that's very challenging for a company during the pandemic is that the rules are constantly changing based on how many COVID cases we have. And how do you kind of plan for the fact that you can't really plan all that securely for what you want to do? Time horizon for planning is much shorter. And that means our commitments to contracting artists and you know just making the sort of finality is also much closer to the performance date, but that's the world that we live in. I will say most organizations are not actually hiring artists right now. So it's a little bit of an ongoing conversation with the people that we intend to engage to say, it's gonna be a, a tighter timeline of whether we're able to make a commitment or not, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, with Lava OM, we didn't actually know where we were gonna be able to do Lava OM until about a month before we started doing rehearsals. Again, we typically, hire contract singers 24 to 36 months in advance. It's a whole nother world right now. How is it for an arts organization financially in these times? Because you obviously can't generate the same kind of income you had when you were charging for live performances. Correct. So I'll use Bohem as an example. 
my goal, which I shared with the staff, is that we reduce the production expenses to virtually the same level as we did revenue. So the impact on us as a company, particularly on our cash flow, would be almost the same as had we done it at the Civic Theater. Now, we didn't quite make that because it needed to be within the realm of that. But what we did find was that we had some new sponsorship opportunities that came to us because that we were doing something outdoors that really reached the whole community in a way that it didn't if we did it at the Civic Theater. So some of that was offset by new sources of contributions. Funnily enough, you may know as a nonprofit, every time we open our doors and we put on a production, we lose money because we never raise enough in ticket revenue to cover all of the costs. That's why we're a nonprofit, right? So if you're getting rid of the production expenses and you're getting rid of the revenue, you can exist for a little while, but how long you can be an opera company that's not producing opera and still stay in business is the big challenge. So luckily we're staying very close with all of our patrons. We have a lot of on online activity and people are being generous right now. So we're feeling good for the time being. How was the opera able to sustain itself in terms of, did you have to lay people off? Have you been able to keep your full staff? You know, we've been very lucky because we haven't had to furlough or lay anyone off. We did receive the PPP funds that came through during the summer, which helped us retain employees, but we've still been in a situation that we haven't had to, to do that, which has been terrific. All right, well, I wanna thank you very much for talking about pivoting in the pandemic. <laughs> It's where we all live right now. Being comfortable with pivoting is, I think, uh, a lesson for all of us. That was Beth Accomando speaking with San Diego Opera's David Bennett. Go to sdopera.org for the latest updates about upcoming events and performances.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how.